I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Jamie Lawrence joins me again. The acclaimed composer and pianist is on to talk about the new release, Swoon, an album celebrating the vocalist and songwriter Nora York. It's the second posthumous release, and it features York and Jamie, who also produced the album. York, who died in 2016, was hailed for her soulful voice and hypnotic stage presence. You hear that on Swoon which uh, features original songs and musical juxtapositions of contemporary jazz and pop music. The album also features artwork by Nora's husband, Jerry Kearns. I'll ask Jamie about how York wrote and how he and York collaborated. These recordings are also song interpretations and mashups. And I'll get Jamie to tell us about um, songs on the album from a project called Jump, which was uh, York's adaptation of Tosca. I'll also ask him about Water, Water Everywhere, which, uh, from which a, a number of songs on this album are from, a prescient, timely project on climate change. Jamie Lawrence is the award-winning composer and pianist whose career has involved scoring film and television projects. He has also written original, original music for the Tony Awards broadcasts as well, has been uh, its music director, conductor, and principal arranger. He is currently orchestrating the upcoming Broadway musical by Adam Guitel, Days of Wine and Roses, and just co-produced the cast recording. Uh, visit jamielawrenceproductions.com for more information. This album is from Good Mood Records and available on all digital and streaming platforms as well as CD. We spoke nearly a month ago with uh, Jamie joining me from North Salem, New York. Please uh, welcome back to the Plant Online program, Jamie Lawrence. Mr. Lawrence, good morning. Good morning. Great Thank, to be here. Nice to talk to you again. Um, the last time we spoke was when um, the, the first album in this in this trilogy was uh, Swoon was released. I also asked you about your father in that interview, uh, Elliot Lawrence, and and he's since died. My condolences to you and your family. Um, I always enjoyed Thank his you. work, and and you know I, I reread the the Times obituary on him, and it, it's such a remarkable life coming out of the big band era. And then, you know, working in theater and film and television, of course, that's how a lot of us got to know him. Um, I was also, uh, um, I I guess I learned in that obituary that that his parents, they were also in radio. Is that right? Uh, Yes. Um, His father managed WCAU, the Philadelphia, Philadelphia station, and it was... It was an early part of CBS, mm-hmm. and a station manager, they put on a show called The Children's Hour, and his wife, Esther Broza, um, classic old-time story, uh, actually wrote the script every week. She auditioned the children every week, and she directed the show every week, and then Stanley, my Elliot, my father's well, Stanley Broza was my grandfather. He would host the show and he was the MC of the show. But I don't even know if my grandmother was ever credited. I mean, she actually mm. was the heart of the heart of the show. Um, and I didn't even realize that till later. But um, uh, so she was a real character too. Yeah. Um, but yes, Elliot, Elliot grew up in that atmosphere. He was on the show. His, he had a little band that he put together that I think also got on the show and. They had a bunch of people who went on to have huge careers. I think Bernadette Peters went through that show. Eddie Fisher was on that show. 
um, all sorts of people from Philadelphia yeah. like, floated through that show. So, and and, and uh, fact, my, yeah. yeah. And to your father, he was 96 when he died. It's an incredibly long yeah. life, and music was such a part of it. I mean, was he listening to music right up to the end? Uh, yes. Yep. He was mostly listening to uh, classical music and some jazz, but usually it was... Um, uh, uh, singers and yeah. he loved Sinatra. He loved uh, that whole era of of singing. But he he was mostly a classical music guy at home, and also when he played piano. Mm-hmm. Though he sort of at the end of his life really sort of rediscovered uh, the standards and started playing them too. Yeah. So, that's that's a lot of his big band work uh, the, from that era, I guess. Is that right? Uh, well, yeah, they played a lot of originals. They only had a, they weren't really famous for their standards. They did a lot of original music, a lot of original charts from Al Cohen and Jerry Mulligan and um, all sorts of incredible old arrangers from the old days. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, he was really, you know, a, a bit of a prodigy on the piano, played piano from four years old and kept on playing piano till he was 96, which is, wow. you know, a famous, famous thing that happens to conductors. They tend to live a long time. Uh, so yeah. no one's ever explained it. But <laughs> um, I, I've asked you this before, but, but I'll ask it again because I, I can't assume that people listening to us listen to our first chat. When was it that you first met Nora York? Uh, we first met, uh, I would say, about 2000, around 2000, I guess, in my studio. I had a studio opening party that was called, the studio was called Manhattan Beach Recording, and she came to the party, and we met, and she then asked me to uh, produce an album for her, and I don't even know where she sort of knew me from, but she sort of, I guess she heard some of my orchestrations, uh, and she sort of thought I was the guy to produce her album. And so we, I produced her first album, which was really the only album we, re- we released in her lifetime. And then we were friends ever since, and we continued to collaborate on music until her, until a month before she passed away. And so, seventeen years later. Yeah, what was it like to work with her? Because I mean, as we hear on the album, it's a remarkable vocal talent, and and obviously a, a, a composer who um, uh, is innovative and and um, who does remarkable work. Um, as a producer, as an orchestrator, what do you bring to say? someone else's work and and, and and I'm just talking about her own work because I know that you've collaborated on songs yourself with her um, did you bring a fresh set of ears fresh set of hands say in terms of, of what you do as an orchestrator say in, 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 in presenting her work um, I, I would say <laughs> yes because we're all I'm sorry this phone will stop ringing in a second. Yeah. Um, uh, it should stop after three rings. Um, 
I think every individual has their own take on things. And so when she started working with me, of course, I come in with all my prejudices and things that I like about music and things that turn me on. And a lot of what, and that's why we got along so well, because we had so much that overlapped. I come out of a jazz background and she came out of a jazz background and I love classical music and she loved classical music and I did a lot of work out of school with a free improvisation uh, group and she also was sort of a master at getting up on stage with her band and having the slightest bit of tune in front of everybody and just letting the band expand and take it out and improvise and she had a way of running the show from the begin from the top of the stage that was remarkable with her long arms she could bring people down and bring people in and so they just run she could just run an evening on stage with amazing skill and so i don't it's hard for me to know what i brought new to the picture but um <laughs> i definitely encouraged her to pursue writing more because she she was sort of obsessed with mashing songs together um mm. taking this song and taking a bass line from another song and having you know playing a tune from another song on top and this this is one of her obsessions which we don't share so much because i'm not i'm more of a purist i like to play like one song and i'm and I was more thought of myself as a composer, so yeah. I was always her, encouraging her to write more of her own material and write her own lyrics. Well, she wrote her own lyrics, but just like focus more on songwriting. So I definitely brought her that direction. But then we ended up going down, as it's heard on this record, uh, a whole path of opera. And we, in fact, uh, the next, iteration will be a release of a bunch of mashups of pop songs that are mixed with opera songs. Um, uh, this record is more focused on musical theater, mm -hmm. uh, a show we did called Jump, and another show we started called um, uh, Oh my God, I'm having it. Water, Water <laughs> Everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, water, water everywhere. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, so a lot of these songs are drawn from those two projects. Yeah. I, I, I want to ask about Jump, um, which is a, an adaptation, I understand, of Tosca, um, because we do hear um, what you just described as mashups. Um, you know, we, we hear uh, the, the mm -hmm. opera, and then we hear her work, and, and it, it, it's, it's intoxicating to listen to. Um I guess when when she takes something that the, the, something else so someone else wrote like Tosca, and and she infuses it with her own writing, um, that would suggest that that Tosca had an impact on on her life. I mean, do you know what it meant to her? Did you guys talk about that? Say, uh, yes, and uh, her husband Jerry Kearns also can talk about this very elegantly and actually is that he's an incredible painter and mm -hmm. did a whole series of paintings on it too but um, there is Tosca is about an artist who's being pressured to um, betray 
her lover and also in the process betray her art. And so this whole, there's a whole, this whole song, V.C. Darth, Darth, see, it's all about like, well, you know, why are we here? Like, why do we make art? Um, what is the role of, the, of an artist in society? Um, and these were themes that really did concern Nora. She was a very political person, and she would get up on the stage of Joe's Pub and make all sorts of hilarious and serious political commentary and interweave politics into her songs and try to make political statements by combining different songs together. And so that theme of an, of an artist, uh, you know, being pressured to perform a certain way or give mm -hmm. up, in this case, like betray someone, was extremely close to her heart. Um, and I have to say, with so much going on in the world, you can't believe that this stuff still goes on today. You know, yeah. there's a, they're driving, you know, Russia's driven, you just thrown musicians in jails, made them like escape with this, you know, that band Pussy Riot, those guys somehow got over the border and escaped. I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable the way governments are still afraid of artists. Um, you know, these yeah. guys are putting out rock songs. Yeah. <laughs> they're freak and, uh, you know, so... Uh, so that was really the connection with, with Tuska, and she wanted to do an, an opera project, and so that we, rather than take disparate songs from different operas, we decided to focus on Tuska and uh, David Greenspan, who's an incredible playwright, took on the project and ended up adapting the original Star Du play into. Uh, a sort of new mishmash that combined music from Tosca with the bits of the original play and biographical in in information from Sarah Bernhardt, who, which the original play Tosca was written for. Mm. And Sarah Bernhardt went all over the world performing the play Tosca. It was her, it was her show showstopper piece, and she, I don't know how many years she did it, 30 years or something? And um, famously, she injured her leg jumping off a tower. I think it was in Brazil. Mm -hmm. They were doing a performance of it or something in Brazil. And there was a huge storm, and all the stagehands were holding a tent down or something like that. And no one, someone forgot to put out the mattress. So she leaped off the tower at the end of the play and hit the ground and severely injured her leg and it sh probably should have been amputated but she kept it and it caused her pain for the rest of her life but really? she continued to perform on this injured leg from jumping off the tower uh, in a performance of Tosca which is becomes a theme of our version and why it's called Jump yeah. uh, yeah, you you do hear how how art you know how how one lives for art and then suffers for art. Um, yes. And and in the case of of Nora York, um, she certainly did. Well, I did, she certainly did the first part. I don't know if she she um, she suffered for her art, or uh, but I mean, I guess if you're a political person, you you do worry about 
the world today and, and the world about the future, because that certainly comes through in, in, in water, water everywhere. Um, somebody that's concerned yes. about the world around her, right? Exactly. I mean, it's hard if you're a political person not to be concerned about the environment because the only way you're going to improve the environment is by having governments get involved. Um, and that's sort of the, nat- the next natural step. Uh, so when we were working on this climate change piece, uh, it didn't even feel as present as it did this past year mm. where you're just reading about the <laughs> climate events seems like every other day. I just got back from Miami yesterday where we had a rainstorm of 10 inches and could barely land. And, um, you know, our, as we were landing, my life flashed before my eyes. There was so much rain coming down. Mm. But, uh, so, Yes, that was sort of a natural outgrowth of her politics and her her concern for the world. Yeah, but water, water everywhere um, it, 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 about climate change. It, it, it's so timely. Um, and uh, as you just said a moment ago, I guess it, it wasn't as a, an emergency that it was that it is today. I should say. Um, and and when we hear this album, it it, um, it comes through, doesn't it? I mean, it, you you really do feel. Um, how dire everything is, and and like I said, it speaks to her how, how prescient she was. Yes, it really does. I mean, she was she was ahead of the curve, like way in front of where I was um, in terms of thinking about it and pushing these issues. And she's like, "Let's do a climate change show," and and, I, and then she tossed out this idea of merging uh, Handel's water music into the. Show. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty crazy. Um, <laughs> again, I'm not such a mashup person. And, uh, but she really was conceiving this, both as sort of a humorous joke, but also because she loved the music so much. So on some of these songs, you'll hear how we write an original song and then the next thing you know you're sort of in this world of Handel's water music and then you sometimes transition back out of that world and you're sort of back in a singer-songwriter world and um, now I quite like it but uh, at the time I was definitely had to be pushed to make this happen mm-hmm. so um, uh, so it's one of those that's that's part of this a collaboration you know you, you're pushed do things that you would never do on your own and in turn I pushed her back to do things a certain way or that way or let's not do this this way you know and uh, so it's quite fun it's kind of like writing movie scores you end up doing things you would never do on your own because the director is saying something quote unquote crazy you know yeah. and then you're like alright let me see if I can make this happen so yeah. um, it, it, her, her voice um it, it it's um it's a timeless voice and, and you mentioned her husband a moment ago um he, he describes uh her voice as captivating and certainly is that it, it has a strength and, and a tenderness at the same time that's uh, the only way I, I can think of of how to describe it what is it like to listen to her voice again in these recordings i mean this this is someone you know this is a friend this is a collaborator uh, and and someone who's who's been gone now for for a number of years, 
Um, by the way, were, were, were these things, I mean, how long ago were these things recorded, especially of her voice, say? Well, uh, the first song on the record is called Home is Where the Heart Is, and that was an outtake from the first record we did, and we ended up not putting it on the record because we had too many songs. Uh-huh. And honestly, it wasn't my favorite song, which is, of course, why it didn't get on the first record. Um, and now when I listen to it, I love this song, and I'm like, this is a really cool song. I don't know why I was mean about it back then. Um, <laughs> and uh, so that was from our very first, earliest get-together, um, I would say over 20 years ago, probably 24 years ago, and uh, the last few songs were probably, oh my goodness, you're really putting me on the spot here, um, because there's all been a whole pandemic between yeah. the time, it seems that you have to add three years to everything that was pre-pandemic, um, so it's probably seven or eight years ago. But when you talk about a voice, I find it interesting because as a producer, as and recording her, I mean, these are all recorded. Most of these record recorded in my studio. I mean, she's in the studio, and I'm just listening to her voice through speakers. Mm-hmm. That's how we. That's how you do it. I mean, I'm at the console, and we're listening to her voice through speakers. And of course, there's no difference between when you go back to the recording, and there's her voice coming out of the speakers, just like she's she could be in the other room. And that's the way she still sounds to me. Like, when you listen to her sing, you, she, she could literally be in the other room. I'm just listening to her through my speakers again. And so, it, yes, it's just amazing. I guess it's a gift that you have as a singer or an instrumentalist. Like, when you listen to it, it's like they're there with you. When you listen to Thelonious Monk playing piano, it's like he's in the room with you. You know, you that's you're hearing this individual express themselves and uh so that's what it's like when you're when i'm listening to nora it's like she's back with me it's like the old my friend is back in the room with me yeah as a producer as an orchestrator is it hard to to say um listen to something and and not think about how differently it could have been done say um well uh, if you're if i'm happy with the way it came out then i don't have that those feelings and then if it's things like, oh, wow, I really should have done that, uh, yes, you have those feelings a lot. <laughs> so there's always, there's always a mixture. But, um, but luckily, most of these, some of these things are very simple. I, I, I couldn't really go back in and do it. So some of them are just done. At, there were, some of them were actually sort of demos mm-hmm. that are just with piano, and some of them are fully orchestrated. Uh, so there's a, whole, there's a whole mixture there on this record. Um, and, uh, so, but in generally I'm pretty content with, I'm, I mean, if I weren't content, I wouldn't put it out. So I'm pretty content with how things came out. Um, I should mention the last track on the album is a cover, so to speak. It's Mm -hmm. called When I Am Laid in Earth, and it's a cover of Purcell. So it's, it's probably 400 year old song. But when uh, Nora sings it, it's as modern as as anything. Yeah, uh, it's, it's not like we put a modern spin on it. She just sings the song. But somehow, when Nora sings it, it gives it, like you were saying, uh, an incredible uh, emotionality 
and a whole new, very, very modern spin yeah. on a very old sentiment. Well, what do you like, though, as, as an orchestrator and as a, uh, a producer, when you hear other uh, music, say, um, you know, let, let's say you, you go, you hear something modern or on the on the pop list, if you will, and um, do you do, do you hear um, a chance to say, you know, if if you were the producer, if you were the orchestrator, you'd probably change something that you've heard. Uh, well, it depends. If I love it, I'm like, oh my god, that's incredible. How did this person do that? And then I might take another listen and try to just sort of sort through, like, well, what's going on here? Why does this sound so cool? And if there's stuff that I don't like the sound of, then then I try not to listen to it ever again. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm more interested in the stuff that like turns me on. And like sometimes, what sometimes things are just scary. They're so good. You're like, wow, this is so good, and I don't know how this person did it. And then then that's that's always a uh, a wake up call of like wow I gotta I gotta really up my game because there's some incredible stuff here that I don't know how they're doing it so and that's the fun about music it's just it's sure just never done I mean you're always feeling inadequate because there's so much amazing stuff to learn and stuff to still do and you just never you're just never done you know. Yeah. Uh, and there's so many aspects to music that are that are, I feel still I'm just dabbling in. Uh, so it's a life lifelong journey of becoming a better mixer and a better orchestrator, and it's you just you're just never done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you, um, I understand, Jamie, that you've been working with Adam Guttel on the the musical version of of uh, Days of Days of Wine and Roses. Um, what is the uh, and again, you can you can speak your experience with Nora York as well. In terms of the relationship as an orchestrator, um, you're presenting, I guess, the composer's work essentially for the first time. In the case of this 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 um, uh, this musical, um, did you? Um, I guess there are a lot of discussions between you and the composer as to how to present that work. I guess is that right? And 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 you're able to bring a perspective that that they. Um, might not have seen in the time that they were composing it, right? Uh, yeah, well, Adam is sort of a different case. He's very, very particular about... Uh, he writes everything on piano, and he writes very elaborate, detailed piano parts for all his songs. And um, so as an orchestrator, you want to be as careful as possible treading around what he's put on the page and um, and as you if you start adding anything too fancy you mm -hmm. gotta be very careful that he's not gonna like it sometimes he likes it and a lot of the time he doesn't but um, so you tend to be extremely particular in terms of being very true to his original thought and his original thoughts are what's there in the, on the, in the piano part um, but and when you're orchestrating for what was a broad, off-Broadway show and is now going to Broadway, you know so much of orchestration is okay. I'm given this small little band, and off-Broadway it was six, and Broadway will be eight people. Like, how do I make this as interesting and as true and as graceful as possible? Um, 
and so it's, it's, there's like a lot of craft and there's a lot of puzzle solving. Uh, puzzle like a uh, like a puzzle might be. Well, I want I want this introduction to be on alto flute, but here this line is suitable for clarinet. So how do I get my woodwind player from alto flute to clarinet and give him enough time or her enough time to put down the instrument, get the next instrument on, mm -hmm. and get it warmed up and play that. And sometimes it's they don't have a lot of time. Sometimes they have some time. But the whole idea is that the the colors are changing behind the singer uh, and keeping it interesting. And so it's sort of a it's both an art and a craft at the same time. Um, some of it's just purely practical, and yeah. some of it's uh, quite fun. So. Yeah, I'm assuming this is. I'm speaking as a layman who knows nothing about music. Certainly doesn't play any instruments. Um, does an orchestrator? Um, I guess it's a lot more work to orchestrate for for a piece for more instruments than fewer. Um, but do you want more pieces in 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 an orchestra? Say. Well, generally, um, yes. <laughs> in general, you'll, you, most, most orchestrators want more pieces. And, of course, if you have more pieces, it doesn't mean you have to use them. But in a lot of ways, it makes your job easier. Because what I was describing here, where I, in, this, in the off-Broadway show, we only had one woodwind player. Mm -hmm. So if, if I want something on alto flute and now I want something on clarinet, well, I only got one person who's going to make that happen. And so the orchestrator has to figure out, well... You know, I have to, I can't, I have to have them stop playing this passage because I have to, I have to, two bars I want this to happen on clarinet. So, okay, no more alto flute here. Let me cover it with something else and give this person time to switch. So there's all this sort of practicality that you're thinking about. Now, if I had 20 people and I had like four woodwind players, then mm -hmm. I could put one on alto flute and one on clarinet and I just don't even have to worry about it, you know play whatever you want to play. So in some ways, the job gets easier mm -hmm. um, when you have a, a, a larger forces. It doesn't mean you have to use them, but you don't have to sort of think about, like, how am I going to solve this puzzle? You know, I talk to my orchestration students. Uh, well, I teach film scoring. Mm -hmm. now. A lot of film scoring, we talk about orchestration all the time, but sometimes you have a four-note chord, and I only have two instruments to play it with. So, like, how do you solve that problem? Like, which notes do you leave out? Which notes do you uh, hint at with something else? Things like that yeah. uh, that you have to deal with as you get these smaller and smaller groups. Um, Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it's fascinating just because now I'm going to listen to, you know, music a little bit differently, um, trying to pick out not just the pieces, but how many pieces, or, or, or um, try to hear the, the work of the orchestrator now. Mm -hmm. um, because I, I, I perhaps didn't do that heretofore. Um, back, back to Nora for just a moment. Um, do, you, um, do you think, um, as, you, as you listen to this album, the, the, the first one, uh, again, um, her legacy as an artist, do you think we hear that in these albums? I mean, I, I certainly get a sense of, of um, what she was all about. Um, do, do you think that um, 
as a way to remember her. The, these these posthumous releases, these are probably sum up who she was as an artist, eh? Uh, well, yes. There's These are the more, a lot of this stuff I'm releasing now is a little more obscure, and we didn't quite know what to do with in her lifetime, and she was definitely a person who was constantly moving forward, and didn't like to look backwards, which I'm, I tend to be that way too, which means that we never were like, you know what, actually, these five songs are pretty nice. Let's put them out mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, because we might be already onto the next project uh, before we had like a, a 10, 12 song album going on. Um, so um, in that sense, yeah, this fills out her legacy and fills out all the aspects that made Nora who she was. Um, and uh, so I think by the time we're, we're finished with this, um, her legacy will be out there for everyone to hear and um, enjoy uh, her remarkable voice. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, that's um, my hope, anyway. Yeah. You, you um, mentioned teaching a moment ago, and you, you, you've, you've talked about collaborating with, with other artists. Um, in terms of your own composing, do you, do you find that you have the time to do that yourself? Well, I tend to uh, work with other people these days. I haven't written any big pieces just uh, on my own. So... Um, that's sort of just where I've gotten to as a as someone who's like write, written for picture my whole life. You tend to start needing um, <laughs> and work worked under extreme deadlines, like in television and film. Like it's unfortunately for me, it's what comes to this thing. Like if I don't have a deadline, it's very hard to just sit around and write a piece of music. So um, so I don't tend to find myself working on just a piece of music for music state but if someone came to me it's like let's do this and the next thing i know i'm in there and things happen and uh and i enjoy myself tremendously so um right now i'm not working on any just art music for art music sake mm-hmm. so. i'm wondering because because you teach um scoring for film um do you watch films and and think oh uh, something that you, that you you could write right then and there would sound better than the score that they actually used. Uh, well, it's not that I sit there and say, oh man, I could have written this better, but I definitely will be listening to a score. I'm like, you know what, this score is actually not doing this movie any any good. And then sometimes you're listening to a score and you're like, this score is nice, man. Like for instance, I was watching a movie last night. Uh, it's called. It's a World War II movie about invading Sicily, uh, called something Pinch. Um, uh, oh my God, it's just classic. The, oh my God, I'm having it. Having a tru- I'm having trouble coming up with the name, but it had a fantastic score, which I'm listening to. Um, and uh, I'm like, wow, this score is really nice. And, of course, I got to the end. I saw the credits, and it was Thomas Newman. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's Thomas Newman, like, back on his A game and killing it on this beautiful movie score. Um, so 
I'll be, you know, that will happen and where you're just like, wow, this music is just working, you know, so hand in glove with uh, the movie and it's a pleasure. And then sometimes you're like, actually, this movie is dragging. And actually, you know what? I think this music is pulling this movie down. I don't, and it might not be the composer's fault. It might be the director's fault. who just doesn't realize that actually this this is the wrong way to go with a with a score. I saw a romantic comedy recently that was like that. I was like, this is actually should be better than it is because um, they're acting. The acting is great and the story is pretty great, and but it's just not like lifting. And so sometimes it's like you know the music can really help with that. Yeah, so. it, 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 there's certain movies that I think um, really benefit from a great score. You know, I think of. Um, Laura, for example, which, which um, I, I don't know, some people might think that the, the music plays too much of a part in the film, but I, I, uh-huh. I, cer- I, I certainly think that it, you know, it, it's, um, it, it lifts the film, as, as you said a moment ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think yeah, it, when, uh, when, um, yeah. And like Now Voyager yeah, is another one that, that makes the, you know, I remember the performances in Now Voyager just as, as much as I remember the music. Right. When it's when the music is that good, then it's of course it's a triple pleasure. Uh, and um, and of course that's what everyone's going for. And it's hard. It's a hard thing to pull off. So, yeah. and some some directors don't realize when their music is not fully serving the movie. But uh, it, these are these are hard, hard, hard to make everything pull in the same direction. Yeah. Um, so. Um, uh, in fact, you mentioned I'm working on this musical, Days of Wine and Roses, mm-hmm. um, which is based on a, like a 19, I think, 57 movie with Jack Lemmon uh, of the same name. And that's, that movie had one song in it, the Days of Wine and Roses, which became a jazz standard right. all over the world. Um, I don't think many people have seen the movie, but um, incredible Score and if you listen to that movie, what's amazing is every cue they're playing the song "Days of Wine and Roses" arranged differently. This time for strings, this time for strings and woodwinds, and this time I hear it on French horn. And every scene is just hitting, hitting you over the head with the same tune. So by the end, like man, you know that tune, um, and uh, that might explain why it was took off so well. Besides being just incredibly beautiful song yeah so so for a lot of people who haven't seen this uh version uh this this musical i should say of days of of wine and roses are are, um because i can tell that that um some people might be thinking of that song and and may go into the theater humming that song um the music obviously that mr guitel has composed is is completely different than that i or, or it's it's yeah. not that right. Yeah, Adam Gettle did not include that song in this show, so uh, you will not hear that song. Now, it's it's funny. That's a whole little mini subject in itself about Broadway and you uh-huh. know, so many Broadway shows are pulled from movies, and so many times there's a there's a song associated with the movie, and then there's there's always a fight between the composer and the producers. The producers want to put the hit song in there, and the composer's like, I don't want this hit song in there next to my songs, but there is no question that this 
this version would would have that song because it does it does not fit at all the theme and sound of what Adam's trying to do. So that's not even a that never even came up. Uh, but Adam's score is extraordinary, and Kelly O'Hara and Brian Darcy James are amazing in this thing, and uh, they will blow your socks off by yeah. their singing and and acting. And uh, I can promise you that. Jamie, it's been such a pleasure talk, yeah. talking to you again. Um, all the best with, with all of your work, and congratulations on this release. This is a remarkable album. I so appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. The album is called Swoon. Uh, you can get that from Good Mood Records. Also visit jamielawrenceproductions.com. Jamie Lawrence, join me on the line from North Salem, New York, in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plantev.